Well, thank you, uh, uh, everyone, for coming. We, I'm always amazed that people pay money to see journalists perform. I always feel like it, it should be the other way around. Anyway, um, uh, before your eyes, you see a very humble panel with a very dangerous question at its heart. And the heart of this question is, can you predict the news? And, uh, and the other follow-on question to that, obviously, is do we want to predict the news? Because news in itself is unpredictable, or so we are led to believe. Um, I did uh, first conceive of this panel uh, as a kind of a drunken uh, Q&A. Uh, I sort of had this idea that there would be a kind Where's of... the alcohol? I know, I'm so sorry. I'm already totally pissed. <laughs> yeah, that's all right. Well, Mark's really yeah. pissed, so that's lovely. Uh, Having a sober Q&A. Well, a sober Q&A. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's what I was going to say, because then Q&A kind of got a bit pissed itself, so I thought we'd better think of something else. So, initially, I was going to do uh, today's news tonight, and now uh, we're, we're getting a bit more ambitious. We're going to do uh, next year's news now. Um, so uh, my name is Peter Frey, by the way, and I'm, I'm the host of your panel. Uh, I've scoured the, uh, uh, the, the country for the finest minds, and here <laughs> yeah. they are. Um, Where are they? Yeah, so well, they weren't available, but you're here, Mark, so it's lovely. So you scoured the Twitter sphere. We have, and we're going to tweet ourselves silly here. So um, I uh, would like to first introduce, um, from the ABC's The Drum, the columnist for the New York Times, from the SMH, and the author of a very fine, I'm sure, forthcoming book called Queen Victoria, yeah. Julia Beard, everybody. Uh, from BuzzFeed Australia, uh, the prolific, the profound, the d digitally precise, uh, precise giant killer of someone like a grander stature as Mike Latham. Uh, freshly minted political editor from BuzzFeed, Mike Di Stefano. And to my far left, which seems a strange place for you, Chris, but it is quite possible... I'm Do you want to swap, you, Chris? Yeah, yeah, I think you two should swap. I'm just really I'll buzzing. give you a list of ten reasons why we should swap. Hey, yeah. there's the first <laughs> one. There's the first one. Yeah, right. First time you've heard that. Yeah, never heard that before. <laughs> so it's quite possible that our next uh, panellist has reached that point where he doesn't need an introduction, but I'm going to you know, risk it. Uh, welcome, please. Uh, of columnist from the Australian, Sky News host. We can't stay too long tonight because Chris has got to go off and do a show, so don't ask him too many questions. A former staffer for Alexander Donor and Malcolm Turnbull, not at the same time. Please welcome Chris Kenny. Now, before I get to the next guest, because there's a mystery guy here, and you can see he's sitting to my left. I, I put some. Uh, I went and had a look at tw the Twitter sphere because we're all talking about Twitter these days. And there are the Twitter addresses, by the way, the handles for the people on the panel. And I just want to make two observations about that. Um, one is uh, the brackets next to Mark and Chris Kenny, as of, I think, Wednesday, with a number of tweets that they've actually put out. And so, and I just question, I pose this question, how many of those tweets were actually at each other? And I also note that uh, Mark and Chris are kind of in some sort of war to get those sort of he's 18. He's on now. No, he's tweeting he's now, that's now. right. But I, the number <laughs> I'm, looking, I'm looking for the figure <laughs> on sensible <laughs> tweets. Yeah, oh, no, right. that's right. There, there are no sensible tweets. No. And, but I, do, I did put in red the uh, Julia's number of followers, 29,702 when I last looked. That's you didn't put yours on there, Peter. No, it's, it's hiding underneath the clock. It's yeah. up there. It's a modest 2,000 or something. <laughs> anyway, the reason I put that up there is uh, by way of distraction in a sense, but also because um, 
Our next panellist, our final panellist to introduce, is actually someone who is <coughs> in part credited with introducing the term social media, and yet uh, probably doesn't have a Twitter account. No, no. John Ricketts, there's, please. There's, there's, there's <laughs> John is a PhD in physics, so he's incredibly smart. He's much smarter than anyone else put on this panel put together, do you think? No, okay. <laughs> Present, I'm talking about myself again. Um, uh, and, but now, who now spends quite a lot of time working with uh, algorithmic tools to work out what is and isn't important. So uh, before I kicked off this panel, I asked uh, people to make some predictions. And uh, John's prediction was that uh, Dyson Hayden would stay. And, that it, and it was some sort of part of the Fairfax agenda to frame him. John, you got any thoughts more on that, given that you were actually, turns out you were right? Yeah, so th this, is, um, this is part of what we're talking about today. Um, the ability to use um, maths and um, what happens on the internet to provide the framework for improved decision-making. Um, doesn't really matter uh, what that sphere of decision-making is. In this case, it's applied to... Um, the news, which is always a different thing from what actually happens in the world. Um, so the news is a construct? The news to a large, yes, increasingly is a construct. And it's a construct that the machines can now kind of get a piece of, is that right? Uh, yes, that's right. So what we can um, do with this particular set of machines is we can look at um, structural long-term engagements around any particular issue. So in more human language, um, Paul Krugman spoke quite eloquently yesterday about bad ideas. So these are ideas that stick around for a long time. So every sector or uh, industry or issue has these. They are bad ideas or good ideas, but they're really made up of a lot of very um, human um, aspects to, a, to an issue or story. So what we were able to do is we were able to look at um, uh, this particular situation, and we were able to understand how power is distributed against that situation, and really, it was really round. We'll go to the rest of the panel in a second, but just quickly, did your machines then predict that Dyson Hayden was, would stay, and therefore, wouldn't it just save the ACTU a lot of money if we just come to you first? <coughs> but did your machines actually predict that Dyson, Dyson Hayden would uh, stay? Yes, I mean, yes, that's right. Yeah. Yes, right. Well, what do you think of that, Julie? I, I'm interested in how you've structured this, rather than by genuine in the wild negative, because I thought, um, the, the legal test for whether or not Dyson Hayden should stay was whether a reasonable person might expect that he might have some bias. And I read the submission put by Robert Newlands, the, the silk who was running the case, and I thought it was persuasive. And the question was how Dyson Hayden responds to that. So I'm just not... To me, that's the, the, the question of whether or not he should stay would be a gauging of those legal arguments. Um, I'm just not... I just don't understand how... I can understand you said it's the likelihood. Are you saying it's the likelihood in terms of how it's been reported? No, it's, it's, it's to do with the nature of that particular narrative. So that particular narrative we would classify, according to its structure, as, a, as what we would call a transient narrative, which means that it will die out over time. It will go away. So we, the, the first application of thinking like this has been around um, issues management, yep. uh, crisis communication, 
So what we're able to do is to use the same, the same principles and the same tools to... Okay, we're sure. gonna... No, but as in public interest, you mean, mm. sorry, you can yeah. cut me sure, off. Sure, no, it's OK. Look, I just want to move on because uh, <laughs> I want to show an alternative view. <laughs> <laughs> okay. We will get back to this question. Jeez, that's it's, it's very question because apparently, uh, Mark, you thought that Dyson Hayden was going I to resign. I was sucked into the negativity of the Yeah, you were into the vibe, weren't you? Yeah, I was, yeah, I, yeah I'm all about gut checks. I'm all about checking your gut. And the vibe was saying he's gone. No, I think that um, I think that when the calculation is always going to be, you look at things like the um, Newland submission, and you look at um, the current environment, which was pretty acidic. Uh, there was a, a lot of invective against Dyson Hayden, and that sort of sent him into this sort of t this barrel roll of whatever he did, um, whatever he uh, whatever stories were coming in. That was only going to increase the chance that these people thought he was biased and that's what the test was it wasn't whether he was biased it was it was whether people thought they a, a reasonable person could think that he was biased so that's the reason why I, I i thought he would resign okay so that was kind of and wrong well it's wrong and beautiful beautifully so and I, it's interesting that you've also said the stock market in china's not going to do anything so <laughs> no I, I, that, really, that, I mean that was that was essentially saying that it won't keep falling. As, yeah, okay. that, well, that's, that's, that's what it was. Well, I mean, and okay. I, I think that um, and I think, someone and I, will apologise for something they tweeted. I think that happens. Yeah, that's day. pretty safe. Yeah, that's pretty safe. Meanwhile, uh, there's a lot of Chris Kenny on the screen right now. Hey. And, um, yeah. Speaking uh, of which. Uh, and I thought, Chris, you had a very interesting pr uh, prediction about uh, Dyson Hayden, which was the Labour Party will say that, um, you know, he's fa fatally wounded and it lacks credibility no matter what happens. And kind of in a sense, you were. A, Spot on. What made you say that? That's that, just your reading that, of the politics of the situation. That's one of your classic foolproof predictions. And there was no doubt that the Labor Party had confected this outrage because they wanted to damage the Royal Commission. So if he stayed, they'd make the case that it was mortally wounded. If he went, they would say, well, this shows that the whole show is mortally wounded. I I'm very interested that, that John thinks he's... Uh, you've had a lucky win here if you predicted <laughs> he, he could go. But I, I would, the, the reason I wouldn't actually give a, give a prediction uh, based on algorithmic tools, which... Sounds like another name for computer nerds to me. Or, um, or if you went for the more organic sort of journalistic assessment, I reckon you're mad uh, trying to predict an outcome like this because, uh, to my mind, there was no legal case here whatsoever. It was about external political pressure. And so the deciding factor was always going to be the strength of Dyson Hayden's character, what was in his mind. Did he think... Uh, well, well, I suppose it's twofold. Did he think it was in the best interest of the Royal Commission? Uh, but then, secondly, his character, whether he had the fortitude to, to, to stick it out. Now, I don't know the man, uh, so I said to John... I I hoped he'd say he'd stay, but you can't really predict that sort of thing, whether you're a journalist who follows, followed these things for years or whether you're using uh, digital tools. No, so what we had a measure of was, OK, what, what is the longevity of the pressure around the... And I think you're absolutely right. I mean, ultimately, it's a, it's a human, personal decision and without knowing the character of the man, yes. Did you game this? Did you ring him and tell him that, look, the pressure's <laughs> going to wash away in a few days? Well, we can do that sort of thing with clients, of course. We can very give very clear advice in terms of what is the extent of the external pressure and what's likely to happen. Is that going to couple into a bigger issue? What will that bigger issue be? Here are the, the tar pits that you really do need to avoid or you don't really need to worry about this. It's going to go away. That might have been handy for Tony Abbott when it came to Bronwyn Bishop, for instance. Oh, indeed, right. yes. Chopper game, indeed. Right. indeed. So, Mark, do you, you, you guys in BuzzFeed, you're sort of big on audience engagement. Mm -hmm. You know, you, you, you have a detailed understanding of how the Facebook algorithm works, for instance. I'm not sure if yep. you personally, but not you personally, as a but, yeah. media organisation, you actually use... The, the tools that John uses in, to yeah. a large extent. So to what extent does that uh, frame 
what you think, you know, the way the news agenda works for you guys? Uh, I think that the age that we're in, where a humble journalist who a lot of the times was going out into a press conference or going to uh, a court, going to a police uh, crime scene, uh, for the first time, journalists are going there with much more data, where they understand much more uh, the way that the audience will likely react to a shooting or um, a pedophilia case in a courtroom or um, Tony Abbott saying something stupid in a press conference. Can we stay on that for a second and talk us through that a bit more? Because, you know, OK, so there's lots of data. Yep. We are awash with data. We are all awash with data. So uh, just talk us through how that works. So all I would say is that... Um, in the last 14 months since I've joined BuzzFeed, for the first time, because um, I was at the ABC previously, uh, I'm getting much more access to the back end. Uh, we get uh, emails which are, have these data breakdowns of what people are reading, what people are sharing, and we can start making calculations um, about what, what, what stories we choose to do and what ones we leave alone. And I think that uh, because we're small in Australia, we're not, uh, we're not very big at the moment, uh, and we're not expected to be a daily news service. We are emancipated in very many ways to only do stories which we can so-called win at. Um, so a great example would be the Gillian Triggs story, the, the, the war on Gillian Triggs or this so-called war on Gillian Triggs. We did a couple of stories. We looked at the data. People weren't reading them. Our audience weren't reading them and sharing them. So then does that tell us that, we, that, that either it's not a story does it tell us that our audience of mostly young people aren't interested in that story? Um, and just learning from that data is just an amazing uh, tool as a journalist. And it gives you, uh, I think, more uh, tools to go out and do better journalism because then you're stuck in a loop, a positive feedback loop, this, where you I'm constantly gonna, get I'm going to get to Chris Kenny right this, this second. But positive. actually, on the way, I want to stop by uh, Julia <laughs> because cause we're right with you. And, and, and I think... You know, just it's very interesting that you raise Julian Triggs. Because just before you go to Julia, could well, you get them to change this screen? It's making me very oh, uncomfortable. Yeah. <laughs> thank you. Yeah, right, okay, thank you. I think the audience yeah, would look, thank and you too. And there's a bit more you, and then there's a bit more Julia. It's wonderful to have one of these things. Uh, yeah. Okay, we'll go on. You'll stay on you. Okay. All right. Here no, we go. no, take it. So, no, this is you. Um, uh, so, how do you feel about that? So, what you're saying, really, Mark, is that a kind of a decision is made. That a lot of data has come in. You go, oh. Shit, people aren't really that interested in Gillian Triggs. Therefore, there's not a win in it. And actually, you did manufacture a win out of it. We'll get back to that in a second. Is that a way to run a news agenda, though? Is that a way to think about the news? I mean, so essentially, you're using predictive tools at that point. You're using audience sentiment right. to guide how you do the news. Yeah, and I do want to return later to the question of whether we're predicting news or whether we're predicting the way people respond yeah, to no, news, which is what point. we were just that's talking about before. Absolutely. So yeah. we weren't predicting how no. Dyson Hayden calculate this legal argument. Absolutely. We were predicting whether the heat around it will remain, which, as Chris said, will be much more significant politically. What, we're to, what you're talking about in terms of responding to an audience is the way the news has to be, but we've always been very cynical about it. Um, I think the, whatever you call, old-school mainstream media has been too, way too slow to do it. For a long time, they've neglected large segments of their audience. For a long time, I worked at the Herald, I've worked at um, Newsweek, 
all skewed older male, and I think to our detriment, and even commercial detriment in terms of advertising. I think they have been significant problems, that they haven't catered enough to the audience and been responsive enough to a broader section of the audience. I think it's crucial that we have that data and we understand what kind of news people digest, what they're interested in reading, and how long the interest in a story is sustained. At the same time, we do not want to... At the same time we're evolving, we don't want to devolve into simply pursuing appetites, simply being cynical. Because then we, what we have to do, as I say, a masthead, say the Sydney Morning Herald, the Australian, the New York Times, we have to be in a, in a, in a massive sea of information, data and analysis. You have to be reputable and you have to peg your brand, for want of a better word, to the fact that you'll be serious about the news and you'll treat your, your audience seriously. Now, you, for example, you, you pursued Mark Latham when, when, when no one else did and, we were, and there were a whole bunch of people talking about it and it wasn't picked, picked up. Um, I assume that you would pick up a similar story in the future because that now is part of what BuzzFeed has done in Australia. Now, if you didn't get clicks on it, you'd still do it because you'd say, if we're serious as, as a news operation, we will, we will have some kind of consistency in that. So I think they're, they're the things. I think it's incredibly exciting, this data. I love reading it. I love trying to understand it. And I think that it will change the way we, we cater to our audiences. But we have to be careful to maintain an identity and integrity in the face of that about being serious with yes. news. Well, so, Chris. A round of applause. Excellent. <coughs> Chris, um, I'm going to throw you a dixer in a way, but, you know, in a sense, let's go back to Gillian Triggs. There may not have been a massive public interest in that, and that this is the oldest debate in journalism, you know, what matters to the public is not necessarily what's in the, you know, uh, is in the public interest. You would argue, I'm sure, that the Gillian Triggs story was very much in the public interest, and that's why the Australian and others pursued it so strongly. Yeah, I mean, to the extent that there was a war on Gillian Triggs, I was the one who waged it, I suppose. It's a story that I cottoned <laughs> on to, and, uh, and, and I pursued it. And uh, if the government uh, committed any sin here, I thought it was because they simply weren't aggressive enough on this issue. Um, so uh, there's a whole range of aspects come into this. People see it as some sort of agenda. Maybe Rupert Murdoch rung me in the middle of the night and said, get this woman. But no, I just saw the evidence of what she had uh, revealed under a Senate Estimates Committee uh, hearings and, and saw it as full of contradictions, mistakes, backtracking she'd caught out. Uh, it needed to be brought into the public domain. So that's why you do it. Uh, you don't do it uh, uh, chasing, uh, chasing um, hits on your website. Uh, having said that, there are different audiences and my reporting of this issue got a lot of attention at, at The Australian. The Australian's audience was interested in it and, uh, and, and I think it, it was well read. But the so those sorts of dynamics I think are really, really frightening for someone involved in the media. Now, I've been involved in the media as a journalist and as a political spin doctor and as a corporate advisor. I've seen it from, and as a PR person, I've seen it from a lot of different angles. And so I understand how it works. And I think all these sins of the media, and the media is replete with sins and challenges and problems. To my mind, the digital age doesn't really add any new problems or any new weaknesses. It just puts them all on steroids. It, you know, it does to the media what the East Germans did to athletics in the, in the 1970s. Mm -hmm. uh, and, we, and, and it means that um, the weaknesses of journalism, for instance, chasing the stories that are popular, are amplified and they're instantaneous. You know straight away from your website which stories are trending, which aren't. So, so that, that, that means the temptation there is for journalists just to produce the, the easy stuff that people want. I mean, I could get the most hits on a 
uh, an Australian opinion piece tomorrow, if I just, uh, given given the sort of young left dynamics of the of the Twitter and online world, but you do. Like, that's I, literally what it, you do. It, <laughs> you, no, you write a column every Monday that is that is designed to get clicks. No, no, and, no, and stir everyone up. No, no, I, I, I do a piece about the ABC every Monday, yeah. and, and and I've written about the. But festival. It, I mean, the point is that it works. 100%. And that's the point. No, you're I don't making. think it does. And you're actually, actually, you're in heated agreement. You If I'm Chris Mitchell at the Oz and I'm looking at the the clicks for the month, and I'm going. God, you know, we're 5,000 down. Oh, Chris, can you just do an ABC hit piece? Yeah, sure, sure. That's because you, I think that, like... It, actually, 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 it's a festival of dangerous ideas hit piece tomorrow, so don't, don't, don't forget exactly. to, to yeah, log yeah. on and click it. But, no, no, it's just my thoughts on the ABC. My, my, my point about this is it's kind of a small audience. If you want those... If, you, if I wanted to get the number of followers that uh, people of the left would get on Twitter and, and the hits, the story I would write, the com- comment piece I would write, would be my confessions about how Rupert does ring me in the middle of the night and tell me what to say and how it's all a grand conspiracy. We will do that some other panel. Yeah. I think next year's panel is already booked in. Um, <laughs> uh, the confessions of Chris Kenny and Rupert Murdoch. No, I have a question for you, yep. actually. And this is this. You say you didn't pay much attention, BuzzFeed didn't pay that much attention to yeah. Julian Triggs, but you did a wonderful sort of, basically broadly, a satire of the Australians' coverage. Yeah. So uh, at that point, you are using the Oz as you know the band, as the wall, the, the bounce back. So you, it's hard for you to say that the the, the BuzzFeed isn't interested in that. No, we're, we're so what was going find... on there? What's the win? Okay. What's the win in that for you? So we're, we're basically trying to find the, the one you're talking about. I think is the Zaki Mala story. Oh, which, sorry, Zaki. Which yeah, beg your the Zaki Mala infected oh, outrage was just hilarious by day three, but then by day sixteen, we're all just like going. Is, is the Oz doing another story about Zaki Mala? Um, and so what we decided to do was I sat down and we buy the Oz every day and I love the newspaper. Um, and I cut out every single Zaki Mala story physically and I made a, a, a line through the, through the office and it was... Uh, they, they published 12 metres of Zaki Mala's story in 12 days. <laughs> um, because the, that's a calculation that they made. And also, let's not forget that a lot of the times when you make calculations, you're not just uh, editorial decisions. You're not just thinking about what will uh, uh, actually get the clicks or the hits or the shares. Uh, for us, it's all about shares. Uh, it's also about influence, right? I mean, yeah, that's sure. the reason why old men run newspapers. Uh, and that's the reason why Jonah Peretti, who's my boss in the US, that's the reason why BuzzFeed How exists. How old is Jonah Peretti, by the way? I think he's like 41. Yeah, nearly old. Yeah. yeah but, yeah. like, I mean, he's... But I think that what... You know, let, let's be real. You know, he's a he's a media mogul like anyone else. Okay, Ez, uh, Ezra right. Klein at Vox Media. You know, these these yep. people at the top. The reason why they run media companies a lot of the times is not just for you know, producing great journalism, which they all do. It's also to have a voice in the media and actually, uh, I guess, pressure politics. But I don't think that... When I just want to get back to what Julia said, I mean, for us, we have a very different audience to Chris and News Corp. We find that LGBT, Indigenous issues, climate change, like, they're the the stories. What is the age, sorry, of your audience? The age? Oh, I I don't know if we've got, like, a, a full... I don't have a full... Breakdown, but it, but it, it skews it younger. Skews young, yeah, okay. sure. and, it, and it makes me happy when I most happy when I find out that teens are reading us for news because yeah. I love teens. I think they're excellent. Can uh, I can I quote you on that? Yeah, I, think, I love I love uh, teens and millennials. Uh, they're amazing because wrong. because they're hilarious. Okay, can, so, I, can, can I just go back to it? I mean, yep. it's like BuzzFeed. Uh, we when you start from scratch, the good thing you've got is you can engineer beats. Yep, and 
What we do, we have an LGBT reporter now, we have an Indigenous Affairs reporter, while a lot of other news organisations don't have those beats covered. And then what we're going to do is we're going to add a press gallery reporter and then we're going to go into... We'll look at immigration. Maybe that's a good beat for us or maybe climate change is. And I just think that, like, a lot of this, you need to look at the data of your site and make informed decisions about what sort of news organisation you want to be. OK, well, let's go back to the data. Uh, sorry, that's, a, that's what's going to happen in, a, in about 20 minutes. You guys are going to ask... You are going to ask lots of questions. Um, and there's... All right, OK, so there's a formula. Because uh, we, we're going to get back to John for a second now. I asked a very, very intelligent friend of mine called Richard Holden, who's an Econ's professor at UNSW, um, to come up with a formula for predicting the news, thinking that, you know, you, you couldn't. Anyway, apparently he came up with this in about five minutes. And I, now I'm not mathematically inclined, so if anyone <laughs> in the audience is, they might explain. But here's a few notes for you. Um, I, I guess the reason I throw that up, uh, John, is to ask this question, really, which is, you know, you sort of sit, uh, you know, we've, all, we've had a bit of spirited journalism, journalistic uh, discussion, you know, the last 20 minutes or so, but you sit in a different place, in a different box, and you look back down on trends, on analysis, on what people are thinking about and sharing. Does that lead to a sense of, oh, it's also very predictable now? I mean, is that a good thing, I guess? Is, is it so easy to predict the news that... Uh, you know, we just need people like you, and we actually don't need people like us other than we fill in the holes. Well, the, the news is... is um, I mean, you must never get confused between the thing in itself and the map. I mean, the news is, you know, the news is a map. So if you get confused between the map and the thing in itself, then that's, that's, uh, that's not a great place to be. Um, but in terms of the map and the predictability of the map... Um, um, Yes, you, you, you start to, you do, after a period of time, you do to sort of start to operate at a more meta sort of level. Um, and there are, consistent, um, there are consistent patterns. So I'll, I'll go back to the, the talk yesterday from uh, Paul Krugman, the sort of the surprise he had around this longevity of bad ideas. Um, you know, when people um, are not acting as sort of rational economic units and you're sort of um, giving them a... Um, some news which really impacts them as individuals and their sense of self-worth and, and the, the belonging as, as organize, to organisations and groups of people and affinity groups. So, yeah, you come along with some news that impacts that and, yeah, they're not going to move um, very quickly. It is quite new. But that's the type of patterns you start to see. You, you become quite... Um, 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 you become quite soft to that sort of entrenched attitude because you see it there time and time again. And you, and you realise that people are really being people. You know, it's not that um, they're stupid, it's really that they have a different set of things that are important in their lives and they're simply there. So you're sort of um, a bit more pragmatic about it. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Do you feel that, you know, we've been in this game for a long time, do you feel like the news has become more predictable? I don't know if predictability is the right, the, the, the right word. In a sense, I agree with Chris in terms of it was ever thus. And not that we have the same skews and we have the same faults, but um, there'll always be people, you know, who, who are editing the news who will write, write and run about things that interest them. I think the in impact of the internet has been to massively widen that. So I think that... Some stories we have to... That newspapers now have to take... Newspapers... That news outlets now have to take notice of... They, conventionally would not have 
for example. I think that's been a significant change. So, so I think there's been an unpredictability in online. Yeah. But yeah, you know, be, there's a predictability now about, about the immigration. Um, What's the I mean, I think, I think, the, I think the, the, the sad thing is that we, we, we kind of... Have, the political dialogue in this country is so problematic that what we are talking about is political skews, not political news. I mean, you know, we, we can't predict what's going to happen. Any student of history knows that there are a thousand infinite variables mm. at any given time. Um, a given exchange of words or text messages or all the things that have led to the great moments in our history. World War I was not inevitable. The Crimean War was not inevitable. Um, and yet we look back at them and see all these kinds of patterns. And I hate to go into history, but the job of the reporter is to uncover things that we don't know about and we're not aware of and not to perennially act as, as pundits who have some kind of ego investment in saying that they can work out what happens in the future, thereby, by the way, um, flirting with the danger that they will then influence it. Isn't it a little bit about that we are, we en masse, the voting mm. public and, and the, if you like, the media as, a, as an echo chamber for the voting public is somewhat more cynical now than than we've ever been, that we've, we, we've somehow lost faith in the political process to deliver, and therefore the care factor gets less, but then therefore the noise that we make even gets higher. Do you, do you, well, I, yeah, I, I think I think that there that there is kind of a stagnation, but at the same time, there's a you know in terms of apathy, but at the same time, there is a heat and excitement, on, you know, online that we haven't seen for a very long time mm -hmm. too. So, do you, Chris Kenny, do you turn to to online to um, essentially, you, know, you are a great Twitter user, as I put those figures up, as is Mark. But that's really about amplifying a message. It's not really about having a policy debate, is it? And isn't that where, <laughs> where, where you know, in a sense... It's you know, a, look, it's a way of soaking up abuse. I'm basically a masochist and uh, you love I, it, I, yeah. I, like, I like to attract the abuse. Look, I think it's fascinating, um, uh, social media and the impact it's having on mainstream media. And um, uh, I, uh, I, I've started dabbling in it when I was outside of the media and I'm still there now. Uh, and we could talk about this for hours, of course. But I think the way it plays into this discussion is, um, is that the faults that exist in the media, and you all have your different perspectives on that, and as I said, they've always existed, but one of the faults of the media was it used to be aloof and separate mm. and used to dictate on high through television programs or newspapers or whatever. And the great promise of social media, in particular Twitter, but Facebook, Instagram, whatever, the great promise of that is, is to democratise the media. Suddenly the people consuming it could feed straight into it uh, and you could speak directly to journalists and give them feedback and yada, yada, yada. Uh, and, and that's what we all look forward to as the positive impact of this. What I think in practice we're seeing at the moment, it, it might change, there's a bit of that benefit going on, but what we're seeing at the moment um, is the opposite. We're seeing um, the media become more balkanised, if you like, more polarised. We're seeing the same people shouting at each other through social media rather than engaging in a, and swapping information. And I think uh, a lot of the mainstream media is being sucked into a, into a green left dead end by social media. Um, I've got nothing wrong with being young, green and left. Beyond, I, I was once that. But, but, and the, but, the, but the point is... Oh, look at this, a cynical laugh of but the, but no, but uh, the point, as I've confessed, I voted for the Nuclear Disarmament Party and had uh, Bob Brown's No Damn stickers on my, on my uh, Jeep. But the point is that if this dynamic of Twitter is, is, is largely green left and 
is instantaneous and loud and noisy. We see mainstream media follow it in, the, in that direction. It not only has a, an, an impact on the media, it might have a commercial impact, it might affect their survival, for instance. They may be irrelevant because people can get all that for free. But secondly, it's actually dragging our politicians in that direction too. Because like the media, they crave instant feedback and cr instant affirmation, so they seek to please the Twitter crowd rather than sleeping on things, taking time and allowing it to feed through to the uh, So be the before we population. go to the rest of the panel, because I'm <laughs> sure Julia and Mark are really itching on this one, but um, so the, can you, what's the alternate view here? Because I, I, I don't disagree with your analysis in the sense that we're all sort of caught up with ourselves, the Twitter sphere, the blah, 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 et cetera, all shouting at each other. Meanwhile, uh, these good people here actually have to make a decision on who to vote for, and they rely on the media to give them actually calm, unbiased uh, facts, mm. dare I say. So is that the alternate? Is, should we be spending a lot of time just nailing down on policy and you know, here you go. Don't worry about the noise. Just read this. Well, this, this is the great, uh, this is the great um, paradox of our time, isn't it? We're, we've never had more access, uh, more, more access to information. We all can get first-hand. We can read the full transcripts of press conferences, look at it all. But, but, but who, who takes the time? So you have to find your valued sources, your valued curators of information, and rely on them. As Paul Krugman uh, uh, talked about last night, some of you would have seen. That's what you've got to do. Um, but in the end, in, in in terms of making the debate a little bit more um, uh, elevated, one of the things I'd like to see, and I'm an, I'm an, I'm an anti-nanny state person, so I hate, <laughs> I hate the idea of talking, but it would be great if everybody on, in social media was actually enrolled under their real, actual identity. Right. Uh, I think it just encourages a, a much more civil level of exchange. <laughs> so like the real Mark Latham. <laughs> exactly. So I, I, if that would have changed. Yeah, yeah, as if it would have changed all, anything, I think. Would, anyway. Can I just say, uh, the problem with uh, these sort of panels and these sort of discussions is they, they inevitably turn to um, talking about Twitter. Now, the problem with Twitter is is uh, very few people are on it. Yes, uh, indeed. In it's about journos talking to journos. It's, yeah. it's, it's a lot of journalists yeah. and politicians. It's, yeah. And it's journos and okay. polys circle-jerking each other all day. Let's not talk about Twitter anymore. No, but this is the problem. <laughs> this is the problem, is that if journos think that they can turn to Twitter... Which I don't know. They always say turn to Twitter if there's some beautiful alliteration. Physically, turn oh, yeah. to I'm just putting up your number of Twitter. Can I say something? You've made uh, 54,505. And it was tweets. all a waste. And I wish yeah. I had that time. No, yeah. I'm, I think that I think that Twitter is an amazing place for people to come and talk about ideas and engage with people. It is also a hive of abuse and uh, an incredible. Uh, tool to sledge Chris Kenny. Like, that is a fact, yeah, right? Twitter Mark, is great Mark, for that. Mark, but we're in Facebook agreement. is where everyone is. Sure. Yeah. And I think so, that that's the problem. So we can talk about Twitter all day in its green let's, left let's, ways. Sure, sure. So we're talking about predicting the news, remember? So yeah. we're trying, and part of that is trying to get a handle on, yeah. and we, while we're talking, you know, what the, sort of John's work, is mm. to try and get a handle on audience, on, on what people are but talking can about. I, can I just add something to this yeah. discussion? And, and, and I'll, I'll loop together Twitter and Facebook, because I exist on both of those on both of those things, is that in these discussions, again, we don't allow for the fact that sometimes they get it right. Well, how would you know? Julia Gillard's misogyny <laughs> yeah. speech was one of sure. the most extraordinary pieces of oratory we have ever had in this country. And the number of women that were impacted by that, the effect on women who still talk about it, and, and in the days after that, I had women who were teachers, investment bankers, lawyers, politicians, liberal politicians, the full spectrum saying to me, I cannot believe she said that. 
that was electrifying. We were all talking to each other on social media. Um, the next day I opened the papers, I couldn't believe it. No it. one picked it up. And I was all sitting, oh, yeah, it's really about Peter Slipper. Sure, that was one part of it. That was one element. But it was completely missed. And again, I think that shows one of the skews um, of the more conventional media. And, uh, you know, no one's talking about Peter well, Slipper okay, now. Just, and everyone will remember that speech. Uh, absolutely. Just it, on that point, just one second. Well, another clap for Julia. That's, that is your second clap. Um, <laughs> Is, do you think then, just going back to the theme of our talk here, do you think that was a predictable response from the mainstream media to, in essence, ignore that speech? Well, I wrote my PhD about female politicians in the media. Yes. They don't treat it as a serious issue. Okay. Again and again and again. And I've looked at it from 1950 to the 2000s and over a half a century, the, the, the media and mostly male journalists have not written about women's concerns and women's speeches as significant as those of the men around them. And it was yet another example. Yeah, no, no, Chris, I know we disagree, but and, and I, I, it would be fine if we had, had the range of views mm. in the paper. Like, I know that's still a controversial opinion for people who don't like Julia Gillard. That's fine. But I did not see a single piece. There was a small piece by Jackie Maley buried in the Herald. So I did my, not my, see my, a single piece acknowledging what that meant for women. So my view is quite the opposite. I mean, I thought that... Uh, I thought there was a lot of uh, social media noise. I thought it was a terrible speech. She was defending misogynist... <laughs> she was defending misogynist actions. She was... Um, um, she was claiming victim when she was... happened to but be the first suggest, female Chris, prime minister of this country. women yeah. experienced it differently? Um, sure. Sure. Yeah. But the, but the point but, but the point about the reaction was um, th that's oh, come, sure, on, come hey. on that's what I'm saying about the civility in public debate. Yeah, yeah. Um, Let's keep it the, nice. The point about her speech um, was that social media got an enormous response, and I think it did play into mainstream media. I saw a lot of ABC coverage. It was delayed. And for, yes, and was it was delay. delayed. And there was yeah. a two or three days delay. And they picked it up from social and media, and, and they said that this would be a turning point for her. It was a landmark speech. Yada yada yada. We know that point of view. We hear that a lot. Mm. Uh, uh, but um, I would say, look at the evidence. Look at what happened to her prime ministership. Look at people, how people judged her. No, no, um, no. It was a failure. But that, that, that's, that's illogical. What, she's Why no longer it? prime minister because she made this speech. Well, it that certainly didn't turn it around connect. for her. It did not. No, it, this isn't about polling. It was about there was a moment of kind of a, a genuine moment of, of sincere rhetoric about what it meant to be a woman constantly hammered not even in a position of power, which she was, but a woman in the workplace. That's and it rang a bell with so many other women. No. But you can't then say, that's, look at what happened to her. That's, it, see, everyone blames what happened to, to the fact that Julia Gillard is no longer Prime Minister with the fact that she spoke about what it meant to be a woman in that position instead of, say, um, a dysfunctional party, constant leaking, sure. you know, all those kinds of things. And we don't need to have this okay. again, but I'm just saying... Social media got that right, and the, okay. the old school media didn't. Do you didn't. think, uh, Mark? <laughs> uh, I'll go to you because a you're young and also you're in BuzzFeed. You know, so BuzzFeed was around. Oh no, you weren't around at that point. For the misogyny you? speech, we, no. we we actually did that story out of the US. Uh, right. uh, um, it. Lit up, did it work it, for you? No, it did. Huge. Because it yeah. lit up Jezebel, which is the yeah, Gorka yeah, yeah. feminist okay. site, and someone, a BuzzFeed writer, then saw it uh, and then did the story from the US about 
Julia Gillard's speech because they then they they could view the speech as an 18-minute block and they didn't need to have all of the background and the context about the slipper thing. They only just needed to know that this was a watershed moment for feminism in Australia, which it was. And I think that that's the problem with a lot of old... Um, uh, journalists that are now freaking out about social media is that the agenda, their agenda is being hijacked by communities online of whether it's black activists in the US, whether it's LGBT activists in Australia, whether it's Aboriginal people out in, um, in the Northern Territory. They, they have access for the first time these tools and a platform to distribute news and distribute their views. And things that uh, used to not be finding their way into the paper are finally finding their way into the paper and it's because something will catch fire online or go viral because for the first time an asylum seeker or a young gay woman or someone who has, uh, you know, who is a, a lesbian couple, they can create a piece of news or content, it can go viral and then straight away it's being reported across all of these mainstream platforms and it freaks the hell out of a lot of people. So isn't the uh, another way of looking at the misogyny speech, and I really don't want to turn this into an analysis of that, <laughs> but that the, the, the press gallery is paid, rightly or wrongly, to sit there and look at the ups and downs of uh, the policy and political debate in Canberra and could only look at that speech through the prism of Peter Slipper. Is that not a legitimate... I, I, agree, with but, you. I agree with your analysis in the okay. sense that the but, mainstream media missed it. I was editor of the City Morning Herald at the that's time. That's what I was going to say. You, but, no, hang on. I'm just saying that that is why we have a press gallery hmm. in Canberra where Mark's just about to go. That was... Now, if we don't want a press gallery in Canberra doing that, then, you know, maybe that's no, another no, bigger debate. No, no, we need the press gallery. We need experience. We need... You were talking about before about an informed citizenry, and it's mm. one of my major frustrations with, with news writing today, that people don't equip people to decide for themselves. If there's a dispute between a union and a business, tell us, like, give us the parameters. Is, have they argued for this before? Does this relate to other industries? How does this, you know... How does this stand internationally? They just... There's never those... Three, rarely those three three or four nut graphs, and you get that sure. with experience. But anyway, that's one of my well, I mean, my that goes down But to no, but it's the, the, the press gallery wasn't acting in, in isolation. There's the a chief of staff. There's a the press gallery loved it. The, no, they reported. We, 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 know, we know that Julia Gillard's speech was incredibly popular on social media. We know it's very popular still with a, a, a lot of people, especially on the green left. What, like, okay. My, my uh, point it is... It inspired a whole uh, bunch uh, of women and men in this country this, this is to this a good end. This is fine, but the argument that it somehow struck a chord with the mainstream or with the majority of the population is simply wrong. It didn't provide the turning point for her. It didn't convince the but all voting of that population. She was a complete. She was. She was a complete failure as prime minister, and her own party <laughs> cut her down. No, that's they're the simple facts. And so, you, you, so this 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 in a way just completely proves my point that you can say that all these all these truths are true in social media, but, but that is a small cohort, can I, can and I it is a green left cohort, quickly, and it doesn't reflect this. the broader view of the Australian population. Okay, we're going to move on. Can I on. say one thing really quickly, which okay. is, I would just, if we just edit that, just, you don't have to say struck a chord X, Y, Z in social media amongst mainstream, who cares? Struck a chord. And if you don't believe anyone else, you can believe me. It struck a chord with me, and sure. therefore it should have been reported. You know, not just me, my views <laughs> always, but you know. Um, yeah. Do you know, do you know what I mean? Like, well, yeah. hey, it was but, reported. You know, like, if, no one, no, uh, it's okay. been most reported Australian speech in the last can I, 20 years. Can I pause
was it a prediction that these people, though they are absolutely engaged in this wonderful discussion and re revisit of the misogyny speech, yep. possibly want to move on. Yep. I may yep. be wrong. You know, move I don't forward. Know. Moving, moving, moving forward. on, moving forward. Evolve. So, I'm, look, part of this uh, session is actually to put a few people on the spot about what, uh, whether we can, in any semblance, predict the news. And, uh, Mark, I, you're about to go to Canberra. Yep. You're about to sit in the gallery mm -hmm. and you're going to be part of that, you know, young white male sort of poetry, <laughs> but nonetheless. Um, you can't help that, can you? Uh, but anyway, my point is, what's going to happen next year? What well, next year's news now? I think, I, can I just say, you, these are, oh. this is stupid. Yes, OK, right? that's why you're sitting here. I want to make that very clear, because we can't predict the news. It's just really? a fact. Because you just can't do it. But if I were, like, yeah. if I had to, yeah. if you were... I would suggest there'll be an election next year. Mm. Uh, I would, again, uh, put... If I had to put some money on it, I'd say that the coalition government will return in some way. And I think that, and this is completely out of stupidity, and I'm sorry, it might hurt you, but I think the Queen's going to die. Ooh. There you go. Oh, the Queen is going to die. That's probably good. It's good that really for you, hurts isn't it? Me. I mean, that's, well, <laughs> yeah. No, but okay. I, just, I was just thinking about this. So that's just a, a stupid, and a stupid will, prediction. And, and will Tony Abbott be the Prime Minister in the next election? Um, I think that Prime Minister Scott Morrison gets more likelihood every day. Oh, okay. So ScoMo will be PM. No, I don't know. I mean, I don't, Sorry, I don't know. I know this is a silly game. I think but Chris like, might know more than I do. No, why? He may do, but let's, let's indulge no, your... No, I think that you just have to look at... Scott Morrison will PM. Look at first-term governments over the course of the okay. last 40 years, and this is probably where John comes in with his analysis. It's like, yes. you just look at things like first-term governments, um, you know, Australians are notoriously conservative about throwing out a first-term government. You know, it happened in Victorian Queensland, so it could happen federally. But I would just say that uh, you look at where Bill Shorten's poll numbers are, um, and I just don't think that the Australian people like Bill Shorten enough to dump the coalition government. OK, before, right okay, that's, but that's, before again, I go that's to uh, Chris and Julia, although Julia's not going to offer a prediction at all, she's already told me, but John, <laughs> what, what, what would I'm... the data be telling us? Do you got any thoughts about that? Well, I mean, you know, that's, you know... Yeah, so, so, so the point is actually to run the data. Yeah. The, the point is actually to look. So a lot of the conversation before about whether social media has a role to play... What we've found, because we've looked at thousands and thousands of narratives, is that it's all highly contextual. So you can take a narrative around um, coal seam gas or fracking in um, one particular country, and you can really clearly extent, see the extent to which social media really is driving that, driving that agenda and driving thought leadership. Or you can take a different narrative and social media really doesn't have any power at all. So the, the tools are available now to understand in very specific um, instances, what's actually So what's if you wanted happening. to put some context around uh, the political debate, you know, the political predictions that Mark has just made and Chris is about to make, wh how would you go about that? How, what's the sort of parameters you would... What questions would you ask the machines to, uh, you know, think about and come back with some erudite answers that we could all... Yeah, so you have to be very, um, you have to be very open uh, and you, you, you're not prescriptive and you, you essentially you, you go in there with no, um, with no answers and, and, you, and you look and you, you learn and, you, and you, you, know, you pay okay. attention to what it tells so, you. I think that the, the, the key thing... I was in the um, UK when um, the election happened then so, um, and the Conservatives played a fantastic hand. They're so really that would dead. be a contextual question. That, that, yeah. So if they've got, got, the, if they've got the same team involved that right. did, that, that they played an absolute 
blinder. Absolutely. And all the polling was wrong. And that's the thing. No, all the polling was completely wrong. But all the polling was wrong. And Linton Crosby and Mark Texter went over there from Australia and did some polling in some seats. And apparently, three days out, four days out, knew the result and knew that they had this one. And that's what what I I was over there in the UK. And the Guardian and a lot of uh, yep. media were so excited by the prospect of Ed Miliband and it was all going to go so well and it was going to come down to a couple of seats and it might have to, they were going to have to go back into a coalition government. And then on election night, the first projection came in and everyone was just yeah, flawed. Yeah. And I think that there's sometimes the data can be wrong, like macro, but there are good people doing good data in certain ways and you've got to listen to those. No, the, the interesting yeah, thing well, about that as well is... Sorry. Yeah, sorry. You have to be very careful with following volume numbers. I mean, we see a part of that discussion has been happening today that if you simply follow... I mean, and it's part of this is, is, is quality versus quantity, and I think that's been another axis of this debate. And if you simply run after the numbers, then you do end up in a world of cats and Lady Gaga driving everything. No, no, none of us want to live in that place. Certainly I don't. So the, the emphasis we've been putting is a lot more around quality. And, um, I mean, this new generation of... Uh, understanding what's happening is is really about that quality uh, access and, and understanding that okay. deep engagement you don't get there through Chris, Chris Kenny Look, Chris Kenny just one second you were a political staffer as I mentioned you uh, as a political staffer you would think that you had the media figured out right you would kind of be, have a sense that you could not only predict it possibly manipulate the news is that a fair comment well, you need to be able to predict it. Uh, if you're going to be any good at it, you need to know what, what the media will do and you need to try and be ahead of the game. I think the media is relatively predictable. And I think politics, to a large degree, is relative, relatively, relatively predictable. And I think... I, I thought what, Julia, you had to say about uh, predictions and, and, and reportage uh, um, is right. There's a, there's a dangerous overlap there. And I think commentators, analysts like me, it's, it's behoven of us to chuck out our predictions, you know, based on my experience in the media and politics, working out where I think things will go, because that's, that, that, that's stock and trade. Uh, what, what I would say, though, is... Um, uh, most journalists never get anything wrong. You know, as they see things panning out differently, they very quickly change positions. And I think we should hold them to account more yes. for the predictions they make. And the other big danger in the media, again, this is another, another one of those things that's exacerbated by social media because everything's happening quicker now. But that is that age-old problem of where a uh, journalist predicts something, predicts the Premier is going to have to resign or Dyson Hayden is going to have to resign, they then have a stake in that being fulfilled. So if they're also doing reporting, yeah, exactly. their reporting will ratchet up, you know. Yeah, yeah. And that's something very much to look out for. And as I say, it's on steroids now with social media. Yeah, so yeah. I'd rather reporters who do day-to-day reporting stay out of that prediction game yeah. and leave it to the analysts who can't really do OK, do as an analyst, who's going to lead the <laughs> Liberal Party to the next election? Who will win the next election? Well, taking the cue, and my cue from social media, I uh, think the Prime Minister will be Richard Di Natale and Tony Abbott will be sent to The Hague. <laughs> be pretty much the it's possible. It? Let's go. Let's and, go uh, and children will be taught Julia Gillard's speech in primary school. Yeah. Okay. I mean, it actually well, does happen, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I'm not even but kidding. Now, They're getting look, taught at high school now. Indeed. Look, no, I think, in all seriousness. I, I, I think... Um, oh, gee, my views were pretty strong on this until about um, the third glass of wine last night. We were chatting with someone... Um, uh, and I just... Look, the, the government is doing all it can politically and internally 
to make itself a one-term government. I mean, they really are making some fundamental errors in those superficial uh, areas of day-to-day -day politics and, uh, and internal uh, discipline. But I still feel that they're, uh, whether, whether they stay with Tony Abbott or there's a leadership change, they are more likely to be returned next year than not, simply because the Labor Party has, has anchored itself on the wrong side of the three or four key arguments that are, that are going to frame people's decisions uh, at the election. And the only thing I would add to that, given our discussion on polls, is the media routinely gives a very shallow uh, reportage and analysis of the public opinion polls. We know they're bad for the government now. But you, whenever you hear the phrase from a journalist that, or, or read it, you know, if an election were held today, you know, the, the government would have been wiped out, of course, remember, they're, they're polling people. The public are smart. They know the election is not on today. So what they're giving you is, uh, is, their, is their verdict on the government right now, really. They're sending a message to the government. And when the, and when the decision is real, the polls tighten and, things, and the decision becomes much more, much more uh, tangible for them. Mm. Julia, you, you said you won't make a prediction. You don't have to make a prediction about uh, federal politics, by the way. I mean, well, this, is, this is a broader church than mm. that. I mean, mm. do you any... Uh, I mean, let's read a few tea leaves. I the mean, Kardashians will have plastic surgery. Again. Again. Yeah. And okay. say that their That's lips have been safe. stung by bees. Uh. Um, look, as you know, because I said to you before, I do have a basic problem with the obsession of punditry in making predictions, and I have not read a study in which they have been in a majority correct. There's that whole hedgehog and fox theory. You know, Ooh. the Isaiah Berlin, and so if the hedgehogs have one grand theory of life, which they tend to apply to everything, often ideologues, as opposed to foxes who take things instance by instance um, and kind of apply and, and look at evidence and the facts as they go along. Now, all the studies that have been done, the foxes are in the large majority right. We've seen things like the Iraq war, for example, when we go to Chris's point of, of accountability, like a lot of people predicted, if not a walk in the park, a very different scenario to the one we've ended up with, and we haven't gone back and kind of and properly examined all of that. So I, I do have a problem with predictions. For me, there's some major structural problems in Australian politics now, if that's what we're talking about, which mm. leads to the way that the media behaves, as well as politicians. For example, the fact that we have a three-year term. I think it should be longer. I agree with Gough Whitlam on this. We, don't, we can have this argument another time. I think it should be at least four. There was a bad budget last year. This year it was, you know, weak. We're not going to do too much that's dramatic. It won't be much of a problem. Next year it's leading up to the election. We, we are not having substantive policy changes. And I think if we look at the UK, if we look at the US, if we look at states, a four-year term would make such a big difference. The other thing that I think is crippling the, 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 the policy, the polity in a sense, is the perennial problem of the leadership um, and who is or is not the, the leader. It's, it's so dull, actually. So and I just... It, yeah. the, but meanwhile, we all live with this kind of, like, vague panic about the economy and if anything is getting done. So that's why okay. punditry no, so, uh, bothers me. There's no. going to be an American election. Oh. We're going to talk about right. Hillary. Well, Hillary, yep. Hillary will... We're going to talk about Trump. Yes, We're indeed. We're going to talk about them a lot. I'm going to make a, a prediction, and yep. I've got two predictions. That is, in about a minute or so, I'm going to open up the floor to questions. Not fair. That was yeah. a pretty easy question, <laughs> wasn't it? Uh, prediction. The other one is that I think, and I'd like to throw this out to the panel, that we may, and I think by the tenor of our discussion, that we may have reached a point where actual proper uh, discussion 
and policy debate uh, is actually going to suddenly find itself in favour. I mean, this is a kind of crazy, crazy uh, prediction. And I wonder whether the, the main political parties at the next election will need to actually come up with some decent policies that we can all actually think about, which is, again, a crazy thought, maybe. Then, but who knows? Hey, you know, I think we're all for it. Right. What do you think of my prediction, Mike? I, I'm eternally an optimist, though, and I think that that's the problem with some of the sentiments expressed towards social media. I think that, again, more people get more chance to read more news, there's more out there, and it's excellent right. that finally people in different communities are getting news that speaks to them. Um, and there are problems, and we need to deal with those problems, um, and, and everyone on this stage is part of dealing with those issues. But and part of the problem. And yeah. part of the problem, yeah. totally. I mean, and I, I think that I'm completely with Julia. We have this obsession with... That's why I, I, we jokingly call it it's, it's on phenomenon. Like, whenever, you know, there's a leadership story, it's, it's on, it's on, it's on, it's on, you know? And I think that, like, every single speech then becomes about how it's viewed through um, the leadership, and I, I think that that's sad. Um, but I I think that well, all, we, I would, all I would say is with all of this stuff, um, Australia uh, lets itself down in a few issues of reform, mm. but every other metric we're killing it. Okay. So I just think question. that like let's let's everything is going pretty well. Okay, we'll, we'll keep talking about this, but there, I just want to point out that uh, we've got about 20 minutes left, and so if you have questions on anything, including the misogyny speech, um, uh, please form a line, and I'll be right with you. Uh, we already there's uh, one there. There's one up in the balcony. Is that number two or three? Sorry, two. So we have two mics. Okay, that's good. Um, uh, before we go to uh, first question, quickly, um, Chris, do you think we're reaching this watershed where there might be a more measured policy debate? Uh, there's so many vehicles for it. I get really annoyed when politicians uh, blame the media for the lack of, uh, uh, of, um, of uh, informed debate because, because the, the media certainly uh, plays its role. Mm. But they've never had more opportunities to get on to television. On, I, I work for Sky News. It's 24-7 politics, basically. There's ABC 24 now. You know, we all watch Q&A and the like. There's never been more opportunity for politicians to actually sit there and engage in a debate okay. uh, when they get in front of the camera, they all choose just to trot out the, the talking the points. It's their choice. Let's engage in some public debate here. Uh, microphone one, your question, please. And can I make it, you know, there is a difference between <laughs> making a long statement and there is a difference between making a question. So please, questions, everybody, okay? Thank you. Um, question for John. Just wondering about your research. Um, what are the biggest trends that you've seen in news and, you know, what are the things that people care about most in your research? It's where do I start? Um, that's um, yeah. What, what do people care about most? Well, um, I mean, I, I'm, I presume you're familiar with something like Maslow's hierarchy of of needs. Yeah, that's that's the stuff. I mean, people are looking for um, they're, they're looking to security and they're looking to belong and they're looking for a a sense of purpose and they're looking for self-esteem and then you get onto the sort of the, the more self-actualized. So, yeah, I mean, it's the whole rich, um, you know, life's there in all its rich dimensions. Um, and people look to the world to help them, you know, sort of satisfy them. So you can take any issue and, and you can be pretty clear there's going to be um, 
different groups and audiences engaging with a particular issue according to those types of according to those types of um, okay. yeah, Muslimese, right. yeah. No, uh, no great surprise. All right. Microphone two. G'day, uh, my name's Adam Brood, I'm from The Guardian Australia. Uh, I just want to say a special thanks to Dad for looking <laughs> up on the panel this afternoon. Had to get it in there somehow. Um, they, they let you I just wanted to make, just, just to say one thing, which is that I find it really fascinating that a panel about new news essentially takes it as its frame that, it'll, that the news environment comes into contamination when it touches social media, you know, it's contaminated by the audience and that this seems to, there's some, at least some degree of agreement about this, rather than what I would have seen to be the, the major source of predictability and contamination in the media, which is the influence of PR people, corporate influences, spinners, okay. all that kind of thing. And I just wondered if the panel might quickly talk about that, which I okay. think is a far greater issue, given that you've got one on the panel sitting over there. Okay, Chris. just before you go... <laughs> Sorry, you want to frame that as a question, though, just so. Yeah. I'll help. What, what do? Why do you think it is, especially old journalists? Mm. Why are you more threatened by social media as okay. a form of contamination of the news cycle and not public relations? Okay, uh, Mark, you're not friend by. Um, you're not an old journalist, but you can go first. No, I'm. Uh, uh, Adam makes an excellent point, which is essentially saying that. Again, I'm an optimist about this. Uh, social media has, for the first time, allowed uh, audience to have say in uh, what it becomes the agenda, and I think that that's an excellent thing, and um, I think that PR spinners um, are getting paid three or four times more than my salary, and that gives me the shits. Uh, but at the same time, that's the reason why uh, it's really important for news organisations to continue to employ young journalists, and for young journalists not to take the easy way out and be go become a flack for someone and constantly move between being a journo and a flack and then going back to being a journo, I think that that's a, uh, that's a problem, but at least Chris Kenny puts his name to his stuff, and again, I congratulate him for that, but I'm, I'm with Chris. I think that social media is excellent. Okay, um, <coughs> Julia. Um, sorry, I just had something. Can you come back to Okay, so he was, he was asking Dad anyway, which is <laughs> his, his, um, his little nice, not nice one, son. Um, look, um, <laughs> The, the, the point here is uh, an important one, but um, I, I think there's a pejorative there that, 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 you, that you misapprehend, uh, that someone like me suggests social media contaminates the media, uh, uh, the mainstream media. Uh, it, it's not that at all. I mean, the, if social media is green left and is taking uh, some mainstream media off to the green left and taking politicians off to the green left, well, I mean, I mean th that's fine. That, that is fine. And if the Green left dominates political debate and wins most of the votes, that's fine. You get no argument from me. My only concern is that in people consuming the media want to get some assessment of the reality across the mainstream of Australia. If you're going to talk about something as simple as um, an election, who is likely to win, what policies are likely to win. So if you take as your guide only social media, you will be driven to believe that uh, the government's got no hope, um, that um, Tony Abbott is, uh, you know, is, uh, is almost Satan. Um, no one, this, no one who takes social media is their well, guy. The, the, That's the whole point. Well, this is my own... It's, it's only you who thinks that it's, no, no, that no. it's a cesspit out there. Well, no, well, no sane well, person well, well, is no, Look, I think even Mark agrees it's, it's a cesspit, but uh, that's fine. There's, there's <laughs> no. plenty of other people in there, but there are, you know, you can't help but anonymous <laughs> trolls. My point is yeah. about just, just getting just to reality, and I don't care, uh, uh, you know, what that reality is. You just, you have a duty to your audience to try and convey what's actually going on. Now, if you'd listen to social media only, Julia Gillard would still be Prime Minister. 
You're listening as to simple as that. social media. It's yeah, the well, problem. No, no, you, you, you two are talking one, to each other. You think there's one Twitter okay. when there's uh, many. Well, yes, that's true. So and let's you think there's uh, only one social media. It's not just Twitter. It's Everyone lives on Facebook. Yes, OK. I, would, I really want people to realise no one's traffic as a news organisation comes through Twitter. None. Yes, it's all that. It all, all comes so through so Facebook. Can I just go back to the original point? Is that... I don't see social media as tainted at all. I see it another form by which we talk to each other and communicate with each other. It's really important. I, I live, live and breathe it a lot of the time. Um, I think that it will have a skew, and I'm always interested in studies as to which stories are picked up and is there a demographic shift, and we're all interested in that. I mean, if we look at the, the newspapers, the places we work at, I mean, if we look at the Australian, Chris, look at the number of male columnists compared to the female columnists. You know, there's a skew there as well. Look at the, the diversity, at the background. We, we all bring that. We all bring values to, to the way we report, and we need to be consciously cognizant of it in case it skews. Um, the way that we're actually reporting. But, but to go to your point, I think, and in between these two, there is something really interesting in the newsroom. There's a stigma about clicks that's still there, that that's the way to put something down. Whereas actually we should be wanting people to read our stuff and engage with our stuff if we think it's important. And, and there's, there's just a hangover from when the news started to go online and the important stuff was on the left and the... Um, at Newsweek, it was always um, cheerleaders and giant squids. They got all the clicks for some reason. And it was great to get that traffic, but we divor diver you know, divorced it from everything else that was going on. And I think we have to overcome that, the way people talk about an appetite for news. And instead, we should be excited about the fact that there is so much hunger out there Absolutely. for John, news. John, quick comment? <clears throat> yeah, so... Um, I mean, it's, it's, it's an important point. I mean, you, you can look at what the machines are able to do and say, well, it reproduces subject matter expertise, and the subject matter expertise is, is 40 years of being a spin doctor. So the, um, a lot of the emphasis we have to put on this is making these... I mean, the great thing about them being machines is you can make these machines democratic and you can make the cost very, very low, you can make them affordable, and then people ha can have a, a clear understanding of power dynamics around different narratives and you know that's really what we sort of that's the other side of this painful process we're in at the moment is that we we do have greater uh, access to understanding what's going on yeah. um your time number one your time is in okay my questions for the panel uh the arab spring seemed to launch us into a trend that will dictate the future of media reporting uh, for example, conventional forms of media tend to often lag behind reporting directly through social media by average people like myself and the members of this audience. So sites like BuzzFeed and, and Junkie are uniquely modern that they coexist symbiotically almost entirely with social media. Um, but grassroots reporting does seem to, to really be launching us into a new age of reporting. Where is this trend taking us uh, in the distant future and also, very importantly, in the not-so-distant so future? So you, you're really talking about the rise of the citizen journalist? Yes. Yes. The rise can of the citizen journalist? Can I go to your point, which I think it? you're talking about with, with reporting on social media. Mm. For the first time, you should, you should see, if you're a news organisation now, you should see social media as twofold. You should see it as a distribution channel. That they're, they're your new news agent. Mm -hmm. um, that's how you get your uh, news out to people. And the second thing you can do is don't take people away from that platform. So what you're talking about is, is what we say is native reporting, you know? Uh, if you can make sure 
that if you, if you put a tweet with a picture with some text and give some context, what's stopping from that piece of tweet being reporting? Like, like genuine good reporting. Mm. Um, or string 10 tweets together, um, and it's a speech at Obama's State of the Union... Because for the first time in a long time, people don't want to go off social media. They don't want to go to your website. They want to stay within their Twitter feed or within their Facebook stream. So what our challenge is as journalists needs to be balancing taking people to your site uh, and actually being journalists for Twitter and Facebook, where you actually now need to keep people and keep their eyeballs on that stream. Because I know I, when I wake up in the morning, I don't go to the BuzzFeed app and I don't go to the Australians app. I go to my social media streams and I scroll through and that's how I get my news. So and I, I, get, I get frustrated when I have to go off. You know what I mean? <laughs> Mike, well, just to frame that the, in terms of going back to the original sort of provocation of this panel then, so does that make the news... Uh, in a sense, more predictable? No, 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 no not at all. I think that it's... Because, because all I would dealing, say is... Don't we have would, a more... Uh, no, but all I would say is... Um, so for, take, for example, something that was very local, Sydney Siege coverage, right? There was so much misinformation out there about Man Monas and what he was doing, and Chris was there, which is incredible in itself. Um, what I find to be the role in social media as a journalist in, in, this, in that sort of context is Ray Hadley is using 2GB to, you know, transmit what turned out to be falsities about what was going inside, while there were journalists on the ground doing reporting from the scene that was correcting some of the falsities that were out there. Oh, it's an ISIS flag. Well, actually, it's not an ISIS flag. Here's a photo. Like, you quickly go Google ISIS flag and you quickly go and Google the Salahuddin flag and you put them together and you say... And you tweet that out and that becomes a viral tweet. It's like 600 to 1,000 retweets. And finally, what you're doing is you're taking people to that place and you're taking people there because you, as a journalist, are eyes and ears and that's, if anything, has been the role of the journalist for a century or more is that you need to take someone to that location with your device, and now your device is your iPhone. So just going back, because the important yeah, thing you referenced there was the, the use of social during the Arab Spring, which mm. was quite remarkable. Mm. And that, are we still learning the lessons from that, aren't we? Citizen journal journalism, and especially when it came to the Arab Spring, was incredibly exciting. It was very dangerous for a lot of the people who were involved on, on the ground. Um, we were concerned. One of our reporters was um, imprisoned and tortured in Iran over that time. Um, and I think that... It, we get to go back to talking about... Because I read up on some of the studies about punditry before this panel and who gets it right and when. The, with the Iraq war, the only people that got it right in terms of what was going to happen was those in the region. It's so obvious, right? But instead of us kind of, you know, projecting or even necessarily relying on one or two, you know, bureau reporters over there, we actually had it on the ground from people whose houses were being bombed, who were smuggling videos out. And, and I think some of the digital activism around protecting, you know, and, and sucking that video up um, under the guise of anonymity, which is the other, which is the flip side of the issue we were talking about before, Absolutely. was so important. Um, and I think we, that's that's another thing that we, that we obviously we haven't discussed because it's off off the agenda. But providing protection for for people in war zones, in conflict zones, to be able to get that material to us is is extremely important. So this goes, Chris. This goes to that question of citizen journalism. Journalism, well, in a sense, it goes to the question of engaging with audience, which you do very well. 
Look, I, I, I think it's one, one, of the, one of the great positive aspects of uh, social media is the way you get this. And uh, you referenced the Arab Spring. What, what's Watch China very closely. The Chinese government are onto this, obviously, but it's going to make, the, make it much more difficult for them to, to, to uh, uh, oppress their, their communities, and, uh, and it, might, it might hasten the move towards democracy and liberalism in China. Uh, I, I use it a lot. Uh, there, are, there have been breaking news stories as far away as uh, Abadistan in, in, in Afghanistan uh, that, that I've gotten onto quickly through social media. You, you have to cross-reference. You have to know who you are following. But I, I remember when the um, when Barack Obama called a press conference, uh, 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 a lot of discussion in the newsroom about what, what's going to be announced, and I told them from, from Twitter, I said, well, uh, they've got Osama bin Laden, and uh, you, you would have been around, that. You, you, could, uh, you could track that down through uh, on, the, on the site uh, Twitter feeds. And so I, I think it's, it's great, but the, the, the limitation is not knowing who, who you're getting the information from, so you need to cross-reference it and, uh, and check for reliable sources, and then, it's, then there's that other aspect of of people being able to communicate and actually organise, which is, which is fantastic. So, which all this leads to that question, which maybe is implicit in your, your question, which is, do you actually need journalists, John? Do we need journalists? Yes, of course we need journalists. Why is that? Yeah. Uh, just make me feel good for a second. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it's, um, isn't this a little bit like the, the, the crisis in painting? When, when photography came along and then... Uh, and we've seen this in lots of, lots of areas, aren't we? And, and photography came along and then painters, salon painters... So what are we going to do now? Because this is this is just, this Everyone is this is better. Mm. Um, and so what looked like the death of painting actually became a, it was the rebirth of painting, and then you know surrealism and and painters had to do something else rather than simply representative reality. They had to sort of explore themselves and go to a much deeper level. Okay. And I think that's the kind of the silver lining with this. Um, these okay, these next few years. You have to go to a deeper level, Peter. I know, I'm trying to. <laughs> uh, and uh, the deeper level I'm going to is the next question. Uh, yeah, that's you. Because um, we, we, we only have a three or four minutes that's okay. left. So, so. Uh, we've talked a lot about audience and data and all that sort of stuff. I kind of want to know um, personal interest stories and passion and kind of the really romantic notion of the newsroom. Like, someone get me a photo of Spider-Man. Like, <laughs> that kind of thing. Um, I want to know where that is for each of you and, and how you feel about the the playoff between what do you want to represent to the audience and what do you guys want to do with your jobs? Well, that's a great question. Chris, we'll start with you first. Yeah, look... What do you want to do with your job? I, I, can't, I kind of... Uh, I, I used to be, uh, you know, really focused on journalism uh, first time around and you just live and breathe for the story and sometimes you actually get trying to get a story out before you were thinking about the implications. But I had 10 years away from journalism and I, I don't want to start thinking like a journalist again. I think journalists are too much... Just for, all they see is a good yarn. Everything's just a yarn. And I think there's a passion and excitement in that, but it, it, it worries me. I, I, I'm interested in, in the issues and the debate and following them. And uh, I don't want to see everything just as a story ever again. That, that's why I don't do any really... I don't do much reporting. I basically okay. do commentary. Uh, Mark? My dream is constantly to... Like, I always... I wanted to be Ray Martin or Jan Event growing up. Like, that was always my dream for some reason. I don't know. There was something about so the... At the same time. So close. Something about yeah. the ethnics in them. I don't know. But it was like... Um, I think that that still exists. I still have my editor over the top of me hovering, saying, what's going on, what's going on? With the Mark Latham piece, which we did, we did three stories, um, I had the most passionate debate with my editor about why 
it's him. And he's saying, no, but he kept, he kept telling me, he's like, no, but it, it could be this. And I kept saying, no, it's not this because it's this. So we had a very aggressive debate in our newsroom about it. And, and I think that um, a lot of the nostalgia for the golden age of journalism is false because we still are living through it. We still have great editors and we still have great uh, young, aggressive journos. And we look for young, aggressive journos in, in, in our profession because reporting, in the end, and this is what you're saying you don't get further away from, I was saying this to Julia earlier, is in the end, that's all I want to do. Like, I, I, I don't want to write think pieces or takes. I want to do the reporting about uncovering the latest thing. And I think that that still exists and the internet rewards reporting more than any take ever will. Because I can tell you now, the, the stories that share like bananas are human interest stories that speak to people's identities. It's the, it's the guy who, it's a, it's the guy who shoots the lion in Africa and uploads the photo. Like that's a story. And I still think that it's like, opinion can only get you to a point and it serves its purpose, but reporting, the aggressive reporting, still is rewarded online, and that's what makes me really happy. Okay, Julia? And I think that's excellent, and I also don't think it should be an either-or. No. I think, no. you know, columnists and it should report, yeah. <laughs> should make phone calls, should wear out their shoe leather, yeah, as, the, as the cliche goes. Um, I want to do that as well. I want to be reporting. You want to uncover things that we're not supposed to know, but we should know. I want to tell stories that would otherwise not be told. And you want to do, you want to almost correct a warp where, where a warp shouldn't be. And sometimes it's actually not that pleasant and it's kind of troubling. Like recently I wrote a piece about domestic violence and the church and some of the teaching that had led to it. And I had such a massive volume of women saying this is a problem for me and telling me their stories. And it was incredibly disturbing. But at the same time, I felt a responsibility to air it and write about it and keep the... the, the, the powers that be accountable on this particular subject because there, there were, people were being hurt. So it's all those motivations mixed into once, but okay. into one. But I don't think you should separate reporting and uh, John, quick question on that? Um, yeah, so, so yeah, so two, two quick answers. One, um, citizen journalism, lots of participation hasn't really translated into power yet. I think there's a new set of tools which will enable... I mean, this is the thing about power. We haven't talked about power in these narratives, but it's a really, really important point. Chomsky recently, his analysis shows that social media really hasn't translated into um, change the power dynamics. And the scary thing is that power laws do actually describe power. And what we're looking at here is power laws. So um, we need greater democracy. Second quick thing is we broke the internet. The internet's broken because we've made it boring. So, I thought um, it was Kim Kardashian's. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's, well, it's boring, isn't it? We've broken the internet. We've made it My boring. We have to fix it again. So we uh, are <laughs> officially over time, but you have been incredibly patient. It's I'd okay. love to hear this your will question. Be a quick one. Uh, my question is actually being answered in very sideways ways through that time, so I'm not going to ask it. Mostly, Chris Kenny, um, why are you so against Julie Gillard's misogyny speech? What's going on there? <laughs> Well, Chris Kenny, uh, I, I, I just, I just, she was defending a, 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 a speaker, a speaker's misogynist acts, and it was, um, uh, she was the woman who, who has risen to the greatest heights of any woman in this country, and yet she, uh, she identified herself as a victim, and I thought that was, that was not, not the right she had thing. A place to do that after reaching to this point, and people were still standing in front of signs that said she was a bitch. That she didn't have an obligation to point this out and say just because sexism is happening doesn't mean I shouldn't 
shouldn't say something about it. I, I think those signs were appalling, and and uh, uh, but I think uh, uh, all, all prime ministers have have, uh, have experienced horrendous abuse. I've seen uh, the effigies of uh, of, uh, of um, John Howard burnt and and the like. Uh, and I think she um, she suggested that she would call out misogyny whenever she saw it, and subsequently she hasn't. So um, she exposed herself as being as hypocritical as so many other politicians have been. Okay, I'm, I'm going to... Sorry, just one one final word from Julia Baird, <laughs> and then we're going to wrap this up because I, we're losing the audience. I'll just guys. say it Come in on. a single sentence, which is that, that when someone calls out someone else on, on misogyny, the question is not, is that person a victim? The question is, is that person a misogynist? Exactly. You might disagree, but it's not about that person. If someone accuses someone else of racism, the question is not, are they a victim? They shouldn't be attacked for it. That's not the question we should be exactly. asking. She was okay. accusing Tony Abbott of being a misogynist. I think it was wrong. All right. On that really uh, <laughs> interesting, slightly backward-looking note, though, for <laughs> yes. something that's going to It's predictable. It's, it's predictable, predictable that, yes. uh, I'd like to, uh, for you to uh, thank our panel, Chris Kenny, <laughs> John Ricketts, Mark Dissipo, Julia Baird, uh, thank you all for coming. I've had a great festival.